Let me tell you that hearing about the the scout thing, and I mean, how mind blowing is it that God has brought the entire world to Mount Hope, West Virginia? I mean, really, this is a major deal. This is a big de- gospel deal. I mean, I'm I'm not talking about a Boy Scout deal. I'm not talking about a Beckley financial deal. I'm talking about a gospel deal. We, we have the chance. You guys have the chance. God's, <laughs> we're supposed to go out and sow the seed. God's bringing the dirt to us. And we get to put seed in it and send it back out all over the world. I mean, I'm sitting there. And I, that got me, I mean, I, it got me completely excited thinking about that. That is incredible. Yeah, we'll just go to Mount Hope, which, I mean, it's its own little place anyway, right? Anybody from Mount Hope here? Anyway. Okay, but yeah, but just please, and, and, and I'm very challenged to pray for that. The, they're carrying the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And we get to scatter it all over the world. Man, that's, that's wow. That, that exceeds my expectations of what I would think God would do for us. And I mean that. And actually, there's a segue. That's what we're talking about this morning. Have you ever been in a situation, gotten something, undertook a task that exceeded your expectations. And when I say exceeded them, I mean blew them away. Some of y'all are thinking about like fireworks and like, yeah, I saw the thing. I don't know if this is, yeah, I'm going to. Anyway, July 4th, it said, let's remember this day as the last day that some people will have 10 fingers, right? Because they... Because they they got a firecracker or a bottle rocket, and it was more than they expected, and bam, you know, whoa, minus the thumb. Um, get into a, a a renovation or a remodeling project, and it turns out to extend way past what you expected. Never done that, have you guys? No. My dad started doing some work on our house when I was small, and he actually ended up taking a whole wall out. And that wall had an old fireplace like built into the, like the hearth and stuff was inside the wall. So when he busted the wall open, just black soot went everywhere. They weren't expecting that. That was a little bit more than they bargained for. My mom said she walked in and just started crying because there was black stuff everywhere. And dad's like, wham, wham, he's just having a ball over there. She was not having a ball. But sometimes we do get things that... um, that are more than we expected, um, and and we, we we're not ready for them. Anybody ever getting like a, a strong muscle type car and step on the throttle, and you, oh my goodness, you know it's like you're you're in the back seat and you didn't even know what was going on, <laughs> wasn't ready for that. Anybody ever learned to ride a motorcycle and hit that throttle for the first time and it throws you off? Anybody? No, just me. Okay. Yeah. Exceeding our expectations, and I would actually say blowing away our expectations is exactly what we're talking about this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 9. We just got four verses this morning, 14 through 17 of Matthew chapter 9. But Jesus is about to just explode some expectations. Jesus is about to completely destroy preconceived notions. And I hope that he does that for us today. Not just these people that he's talking to in our passage, but us today in our hearts. If you would stand 
as we read these four verses, which seem innocuous enough, but like Jesus, so often it is so much more than we expected. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, you have recorded this word for us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit through your holy apostle. And as he wrote these words that he remembered Jesus saying, you were writing them for our instruction, for our benefit. Help us, God, to receive what you have for us this morning. And God, I do pray that you would blow away our expectations and do so much more than what we came here for. We trust you. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) So last week, we left Jesus and his disciples uh, at a dinner party that they had been to that was thrown by Matthew, the author of this gospel. Um, And Matthew was a tax collector. And all of Matthew's friends, the people that he hung out with, were people of poor repute, to say the least. Okay, Tax collectors and sinners. And Matthew, being that hated tax collector, had left everything at Jesus' call to follow Jesus. And I'm sure people were just slack-jawed looking, going, what in the world is going on? Why would he call Matthew? Why would he call this sinner, this publican, this tax collector, why would Matthew follow him? And then why in the world would Jesus and his men go into this man's house and have a party, a dinner party, with all of these lecherous people? But Jesus and his disciples did have the audacity to share life with Matthew and his kind, tax collectors, sinners, probably prostitutes and such. And the Pharisees thought it was their religious duty to investigate as to why this was, why why Jesus was doing this. Why in the world would this so-called rabbi breathe the same air as these heinous sinners? Well, Jesus made it clear that the very reason that he had come into the world as God in the flesh was to call sinners to repentance, not righteous people to try harder to do better. He had come, he said, as a sort of physician to help sick people. And he wasn't wasting his time with those who thought that they were well. He had also stung the Pharisees by telling them that they needed to learn the meaning of the Old Testament passage from Hosea where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. As if it hadn't been clear before, the Pharisees were setting themselves up to be quite possibly Jesus' most adamant and vocal enemies. And this was just one of many confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees that would occur over the course of Jesus' public ministry. These Pharisees who saw themselves as the purest of the pure, 
whose very name Pharisee meant separated. And that meaning in their minds, separated from the world and its sin. These Pharisees who had a zeal for the things of the Old Testament and their idea of God and holiness and right living. But it was their idea. They would spend these years of Jesus' ministry appalled by the actions of the Son of God. They would spend His ministry years, their Messiah, whom they rejected outright, questioning everything that He did. And they would miss the promise that God had made all through their scriptures in the Old Testament, and they would angrily oppose His plan as it unfolds through the life of Jesus. But Jesus did have people who did know Him. Jesus did have people who recognized Him as the Messiah more and more as He continued to work miracles and teach. He had people around Him, people He was familiar with, people he, who were familiar with Him, who saw God's plan unfolding in His day and time. Of course, He had the twelve. He had those who had come to know and treasure Him through His ministry at this point. And, and, and He had had John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, whose whole life whose whole ministry was spent preparing the way for Jesus to come. So John knew what was going on, right? Well, maybe not. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So, here we see the disciples of John coming to Jesus. We don't know who these guys are. We don't have names. We know that some of the disciples of John left John and started following Jesus. We see that in the Gospel of John. So one day Jesus was walking along and John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two of his guys left and then later a couple more would come. So some of the disciples of John had left John and went to Jesus. And John was good with that. John said, He must increase and I must decrease. So John knew that. But now there are some disciples of John coming to Jesus. We don't know who they are, how many they are, but we see them simply described as the disciples of John. There will, be, there will continue to be disciples of John far into the New Testament. We see it in the book of Acts. When, G, when Paul shows up in Ephesus, he meets some disciples of John. So this is kind of a thing. Okay. Now the timeline here is not clear in Matthew 9.14. Matthew, and this, this kind of makes for some mayhem if you don't know this, Matthew's account, Matthew's gospel, is not necessarily in chronological order all the time. Okay? The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write in a general flow of thought, not making it necessary to correctly set things in a stiff timeline. Luke does that, by the way. Luke says that he set his account out in order. So we can kind of gauge timeline by Luke as we plug things from Matthew and Mark and John around Luke to see chronological order. So the reason I'm saying that is we don't know exactly where John is at this point. Okay, John might be in prison at this point. We know that John did end up in prison because he confronted Herod for taking Herod's brother's wife as his own. And what happened to John? He went to prison and he ended up getting his head cut off and put on a platter because that's what Herodias wanted. Okay, But the main thing I'm saying here this morning is we don't know if John's in prison now or not. We don't know what's going on. So we don't know if this account happened before or after John was jailed. But these disciples of John who were faithfully, faithfully following John 
and or his teachings of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and preparation for the kingdom of God, these disciples come to Jesus and they got questions. Okay? Suppose, and maybe, maybe it was, suppose that Jesus and his disciples had just left this feast at these sinners' houses. And they're confronted by the Pharisees first. Why are you doing that? Well, now they're confronted by friends. People who, John's disciples, they would know who Jesus was. They would know what was going on. Even though John himself had questions even late in life. Are you the Messiah or is somebody else coming? But these were, these were friends. These were allies. So the Pharisees had confronted him. Now his friends are confronting him. They got questions. They asked Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? You just left a big feast with a bunch of sinners. And I ain't never seen y'all afflict yourselves. Why is that? Interesting question. So the disciples of John want to know why Jesus' disciples don't fast. Now keep that in mind because that's the question that's going to be answered through the rest of these verses. Why don't your disciples fast? Like the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast like we fast? The disciples of John would ask. John had taught them to fast. And they had grown up seeing the Pharisees fast. So what was Jesus and his guys? What were they doing? Well, first of all, let's look at John and his disciples and then the Pharisees and how they would have fasted. Well, actually, we've already talked about the Pharisees when we worked through the Sermon on the Mount. In that time, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount not to be like the hypocrites. He was talking about the Pharisees who fast to be seen by men. They fasted twice a week, we saw. Those were the market days so that they could be out in public and people could see them when everything was busy. It was like when the World Jamboree is going on in Beckley, right? It's like that, that's what they did. They went out when people would see them, Okay. And they were very public about it. Remember we said they would actually wear make-down instead of make-up? They would disfigure their faces, contort their faces, put on this pale uh, face like some 13-year-old just learning how to do her makeup kind of thing. It's like, what happened? Your face is white. What are you doing? Did no one look at you and say your face is white? Sorry. I see it sometimes. Not in my house. Not in my house. Anywho. They wore this make-down. They would contort their faces. They would wear sackcloth and ashes. Everybody knew when the Pharisees were fasting. And they knew that the Pharisees were doing it to be pious and religious. So that's how the Pharisees fasted. Now what about John's disciples? How would they have fasted? Well, it's different. John had left and went into the wilderness... And he was more than likely, it's pretty much agreed, that he was part of the religious group known as the Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. The Essenes had retreated from culture to be apart and separate. The Pharisees were working to be separate within the communities that they were in, even though really they weren't separate. They just had some religious rituals. But the Essenes would have seen it as evil to be active within the sinful community at all. So they retreated out into the caves and outlying areas that most people would not have thought of living in. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were found in some caves near Qumran. What was the Essenes who copied those things? Okay? They had separated themselves and they were out and they were very, very, very aesthetic. Ascetic. Ascetic is the word. Separated. They, they were kind of like we, we talked this past Wednesday about people in the Old Testament who had taken a Nazarite vow. 
okay, to be separate, very publicly separate for the Nazarites. But the Essenes would separate themselves, live out in caves and communities of just the faithful people. They fasted very often. They actually didn't eat much at all on a consistent basis as a way of buffeting their bodies. So their fasting wouldn't have been in public like the Pharisees, but it would have been consistent like the Pharisees. So John would have fasted consistently and would have taught his disciples to do the same. It's enough that the learner become like his teacher. That's the goal of having disciples and making disciples. So John would have taught his disciples to fast like he fasted. Of course, he lived on locusts and wild honey. Okay, I'd be fasting too because I don't think I want to eat bugs. So back to our passage. These disciples of John come and ask Jesus why, him, why his disciples don't fast either like the Pharisees in open in public and on the regular, or like John and his disciples in private on the regular. Because obviously, obviously, if you're going to be spiritual, you have to fast. That's the thought pattern here. Well, Jesus has fasted. We saw him do that 40-day, 40-night thing, right? When he was out in the wilderness before Satan came and tempted him. But after that, we don't see him fasting. We see him feasting. We see him eating with sinners and publicans and those guys. And that really bothers these religious people. They can't take it. Uh, There's a commentator named Robert Muntz, and he said, we've gone from should Jesus eat with sinners to should he be eating at all. And who has the stricter standard? The religious people. Now keep that in mind. And keep in mind that in the Old Testament, we said this before, there was how many days per year that the Jews were commanded by God to fast? One. In the Old Testament scriptures, there was one day that God prescribed to fast. That was the day of atonement to afflict your soul, to understand that my sins have brought on affliction and this animal is is dying basically in my place and it's to be aware of my sins and the need for my forgiveness. One day a year. And the Pharisees with their twice a week fasts and the Essenes and by association the disciples of John with their consistent and persistent fasting have made their pursuit of holiness necessarily include regular fasting. So why Jesus? Why? Why don't your disciples fast like us? Why aren't you teaching them what they're supposed to be doing? Aren't you guys pursuing God? Jesus, haven't you been teaching about the kingdom of the heavens and what it looks like here on earth? And wouldn't that obviously include the self-discipline and self-denial of consistent fasting? Well, the Old Testament scriptures didn't teach that. And Jesus wasn't teaching his disciples that. And Jesus is going to give them three illustrations to show why his disciples don't fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees. The first one is in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the first illustration that Jesus uses to explain why his disciples don't fast is one of a wedding. He refers to the guests of a wedding mourning at a wedding. Now, I've probably been to a couple of weddings where people should have been mourning at that wedding because I'm thinking this is not going to work. This is bad. But generally, generally, weddings are happy affairs and people aren't mourning. They're not wearing sackcloth and ashes. It's not a solemn occasion. 
except for the groom, right? right. But in Jesus' day, now weddings were a much bigger deal than they are in our day. And you say, wait a minute, have you ever planned a wedding in our day? I haven't. My wife did. But, um, but I mean, these, these were like seven-day or more events. I mean, the party went on for a week or more. Okay? So generally, they weren't mourning. They were celebrating. A lot of times they were drinking. Drinking for seven-plus days. Okay? So, and it was the job of the groomsmen to make this party big. It was, it was the job of the groomsmen and the family to make this party a big deal. Weddings were town-wide events where people celebrated and drank and laughed, and it was a huge to-do. And now Jesus here compares him being around, being with his disciples, to being like a bridegroom at the wedding, and them being like the guests who were celebrating his big day. The disciples were like the guests who were celebrating his presence among them as a means of great joy. Who would mourn in such a situation? Who would afflict themselves? Who would fast at a great wedding feast? Jesus is saying that he is here and it would be wrong-minded of his disciples, his guests, so to speak, to fast while he's around. Then he says, there will come a time when I'm gone and they will fast. So it's not that the disciples will never fast, not that they won't have occasion to in the future, but for now, while Jesus is around, it's time to learn, it's time to grow, it's time to reach out, it's time to celebrate. God in the flesh was walking with them. God in the flesh, the Messiah was teaching them. He was doing great miracles. And they were supposed to be celebrating. So that's Jesus' first explanation as to why his disciples don't fast. Now, the other two are very closely related. We're going to read them together and then kind of break them down separately. So that's verses 16 and 17. The first one was the wedding. Now, listen to this. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now what? What? The first argument, I think, was pretty straightforward, Pretty easy to understand. They can't mourn. I'm here. They can't fast. We're celebrating. That's reason to celebrate. I'm here. But what about these two things? All of a sudden, Jesus switches from weddings to sounding like a tailor. And then he goes from being a tailor to making wine. Cloth and garment and patches and tears, wine and wineskins, new, old, and fresh. Now again, what? What's, what? Remember, Jesus is giving an explanation for why his disciples don't fast, especially in connection to the fasting of the Pharisees and the disciples of John. Why don't they do what the other religious people do? Why don't they practice the time-honored discipline of fasting? Well, keep in mind that we said earlier today and early in our study of Matthew that there was one day out of the year, one day, that God had prescribed for fasting for His people. One day out of... Their, days weren't th- their years weren't 365 days. There were 360, if I remember right. Maybe less than that. But anyway, one day out of the 300 plus days of the year. Now, 
There were certainly solemn assemblies called and reasons why people would fast besides just that one day of the year, but God's fasting calendar was one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But how does that compare to the twice-a-week fasting of the Pharisees and the seemingly continuous fasting of the Essenes and the disciples of John? Well, Jesus is making more of a contrast than a comparison. What the Pharisees and John's disciples were doing, listen to me, was not, not, not according to what God had asked of or expected of them. The fasting of the Pharisees, the fasting of John's disciples, was their decision. It was their choice. It was their efforts to reach up to God themselves. It was part of their religion. Not a part of God's law or God's plan. Now that's incredibly important as we move forward here. Nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Nothing wrong with fasting. You want to fast twice a week? Fast twice a week. But Jesus said don't do it out in public for people's attention. But what they're doing is they're making their expectations, their habits, their practices expected if you're going to be a good Christian, so to speak. Anybody ever heard something like that? Good Christians don't do this. Good Christians do this. Good Christians don't do this. Good Christians don't do this. How could you call yourself a Christian and do that? You don't do that if you're a good Christian. Good Christians shouldn't do that. And you're going, I don't see that in the Scripture anywhere. But they're looking down their religious nose at you saying, you obviously are not a good Christian because you don't blank or you do blank. And that's exactly what's going on here with the Pharisees and with John's disciples. Well, you're not even fasting. It was their religion, not God's law or plan. And what Jesus is saying in these two arguments here in verses 16 and 17 against his disciples participating in these types of fasting is that if he taught his disciples or instructed them to fast like either the Pharisees or even like John's disciples, then it would lead to problems. Why? Because what Jesus was teaching was an implementation of the kingdom of the heavens here on earth. The types and shadows that had been recorded and referenced throughout the years of the Old Testament history were being fulfilled in Jesus. He was fulfilling those scriptures. He had said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And even more, he had come to abolish man's efforts to reach up to God. Man's efforts to fast and afflict themselves, hoping God would see a good effort put forth and maybe, possibly, share some blessing for this good work of man. And Jesus Christ would have none of that. Trying to earn God's favor or trying to, in your own way, whether it was fasting or something else, is not a sufficient way to be righteous. So Jesus says that things like that are like sewing an unshrunk patch on a new garment. And like putting new wine in old wineskins. Let's explore those for just a few minutes. First, the cloth and the garment thought. Why don't your disciples fast like us and the Pharisees? Because if they did fast like you all, hoping to earn God's favor or blessing as a result, the outcome would be less than desirable. It would be like taking some cloth that wasn't pre-shrunk and sewing it onto an old garment that had a hole in it. Anybody see any problems developing here? You see, the problem with that is when the unshrunk cloth begins to shrink, 
it's going to pull away from the spot that it was sewn onto because it's no longer big enough. It's no longer sufficient to cover the hole it was sewn into. It's not enough. It looked new and shiny like a sufficient thing to help, but it ultimately not only is not enough, it makes more damage than was originally there. Oh, you see? Jesus had come to introduce Himself as the way to God. And if He tried to make fasting a way to God, the efforts to fast would have looked good. But they would have caused more problems than the disciples had before Jesus came. They would have thought that they had their problem fixed, but would really have been in worse shape than before Jesus came. They would have placed their trust in their fasting and missed the only way to God by faith in Christ. But we're fasting. It looks good. It's religious. Surely that'll help us. And it wouldn't have helped them at all. It actually would have hurt them. And their latter state would have been worse than their former state before Jesus came. Jesus was not teaching human effort or religious observance. Jesus was teaching a faith in His work. Man's efforts were to have no part in His work. At all. So Jesus wasn't going to teach that to His men. Alright guys, watch me. I'm going to fast because God likes it when you fast. Jesus isn't going to do that. And when He left, they'd have been thinking, well, we better fast because that's what Jesus taught us to do. That was not their message at all. But that's not all. Cloth. What about wine? The new wine talk. What's that all about? Verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now this is similar to what we saw with the patch and the garment, but with a little bit more nuance than that. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like us and the Pharisees? John's disciples asked. Well, Jesus says here that doing so would be like putting new wine in old wineskins. Now, I'm going to ask you to show your sinner a little bit, okay? Show me your sin, okay? Anybody ever been around or seen somebody making homemade wine? Me and Lucas are, okay, I'll show you, okay. I figured you guys, I mean, I just, you know. Okay. Well, I mean, I figured there was somebody associated with you all that made homemade wine. I just figured it. Okay. Sinners. Me too. I worked with a guy a long time ago, and he was as country as that. He talked like this, y'all. And he invited us over one night from work to play some cards. Again, sinners. When we got there, he was in the process of making some wine. Okay, and if I remember right, it was watermelon wine because it, it's the Tom T. Hall song, right? Old dogs, children, watermelon wine. Um, he had the mixture in one of those uh, water cooler bottles, the big blue or clear that you plop down in there. It's got the spout. He, he had all the mixture in there. I don't know what all was in there. Probably, I don't know. I don't know how to make wine, so I'm not that much of a sinner. But anyway, <laughs> if you make wine, I'm, I'm cool with it, y'all. I don't really care, but I, I don't know how to do it. But he had his mixture in there, and on top of the spout, he had a balloon. Okay? 
and that balloon was blowed up real big. And I'm like, what is that? What are you doing? He's like, I'm making some wine, man. Okay, what's up with the balloon? It's going to float away, okay? That mixture had to be capped off to keep everything in so that the fermentation process could occur and not lose anything that would make the wine good, okay? But you can't use a normal cap because the pressure builds up in there and it'll either blow off the cap or it can actually blow up the container if it's a cheaper container. It would explode. Fermentation, it puts off gases and that causes expansion, okay? Hence the balloon. I wish y'all could see it. I wish I had a picture of us. We didn't have cell phones back then. So tell me about your wine. Let's, let's do a YouTube video about wine. So, so this fermentation is putting off all this gases. Now in the New Testament, they made wine. Okay? Maybe not quite like my friend did. I don't think they had balloons back then. But they would use animal skins as containers. They would take the skin off of animals, sew it together or whatever, whatever they would do. And those animal skins were kind of their jug. That's kind of what they let it grow in, okay? Well, new wine was still going through that fermentation process. And so it needed to be in something pliable, something expandable, something that would stretch so that it wouldn't bust as that wine was fermenting further in there, okay? So Jesus compares his way of doing things, his wine as needing fresh wineskins. Hmm. I can't help but think that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Wine, Holy Spirit, those things are really associated with each other in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit would come after Jesus ascended to heaven after His death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit of God, listen to me, could not simply move into an old religious process and coexist. God was doing something new in this time. And that new thing, listen to me, would not fit into the old system. The Holy Spirit could not fit into their plans. The Holy Spirit could not fit into their organization. He'd blow it apart. No, the Holy Spirit was going to bring new things powerful things into the lives of the, the lives of those whose lives he had invaded. The Holy Spirit could not simply move into a religious person's life even if they were devout and fasting and everything like that. Any effort to have him cooperate with my old ways, their old ways, any man-made ways would be to court disaster. Jesus is saying, I'm doing a new thing and I'm going to blow away all of your expectations. So your question about fasting really doesn't matter. Not that your fasting is bad. It's just I want to do more than just have you fast. I'm going to make a way to God that doesn't require you doing anything. I'm going to make a way to God where the Holy Spirit of God comes in and blows away your expectations and draws you to me so that you can celebrate all the time. Jesus was bringing new things. And any effort to have Him cooperate with my ways, my plans, was not going to work. 
the Holy Spirit would come and make all things new. Remember a few weeks ago we referenced the new covenant promises God had made in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I think we need to look at those again. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Old Testament talking about the new covenant that's coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's another uh, wedding reference, by the way. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, 24-28 I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. See the connection here with the wineskins? We've got to have a new heart before the Holy Spirit can move in. Our heart of stone cannot contain Him. He will shatter it. He will break it into a million pieces. He can't coexist with my system. He can't operate within my system. He's doing something new. He's doing something different. And it blows away my expectations. And He's got to do it in a new heart in a new wineskin. Jesus was saying in our passage in Matthew that a new heart was needed to contain the new work of God in this fulfillment stage of His plan. Now remember, He's not doing away with the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. He's not saying the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying you don't have to pay any attention to this anymore. He said, I'm going to fulfill it and show you that I'm the one that it was talking about. It's the fulfillment stage of His plan. There would be no working in God and His plan. You can't work God and His plan into the man-made structures of religiosity and personal piety. The new wine of God's Spirit who would baptize new covenant believers into Christ had to have the new wineskins of the new hearts of these believers. God had to give that newness not to try to fit into their old systems. The Holy Spirit of God was about to blow all of that away like new wine in an old wineskin. See, those old wineskins got rigid and they got hard. And as that new wine expanded, it literally shattered them. It broke them. And they lost the wine and the wineskin. And Jesus is saying, if you're trying to operate in my kingdom under your religious experience, I'm going to blow that away and you're going to lose it all. Your system and any hope you had of containing my Holy Spirit. And God was not going to waste this precious wine of His Spirit. And Jesus wanted His hearers to understand that He was not teaching